This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. In this very cold January in Singapore, and I hope that you will find yourself warmed by God's Word, or if not, we will continue to engage with it that we can see and hear what God has for us. So if you're here for, uh, with us for the first time, we often have this call, what we call the survival kit, where the Bible passage is there, where the sermon outline is there, where you can let us know how you think and for us to tell you who we are. So this is a great piece to have with you this afternoon. If you'll join me today, um, let me pray for us that God will speak to us in this new series that we have. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word that never goes forth empty. The word that goes out is like a double-edged sword that will speak to us and that will pierce the hearts of many. So, Father, today as we come in your presence, we pray that you will engage our mind, you will engage our hearts, and you will strengthen our hands. That your word that we have understood may be applied into our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, a Puritan by the name George Swinock once wrote this. I have it on the screen. He says this, Have you never witnessed a condemned prisoner dissolved into tears upon the unexpected and unmerited receipt of a pardon? all this time before was as hard as a flint. The hammer of the law may break the icy heart of a man with terror and horror, and yet that heart remains eyes still unchanged. But when the fire of love kindled, kindly tolls its eyes, it is changed and dissolved into water. It's no longer eyes, but of another nature. Now, Swinock his right, then an icy heart, you can smash an icy heart, it will still be ice. But if it is warmed with heat, it becomes something very different. So dear friends, welcome to the start of our Roman series. This letter is a letter by God's messenger by the name Paul, and he writes to his friends in the church in Rome, because this letter, it will review the horrors of our world, the horrors that we will face, the reality of our situation. But at the same time, it will reveal a God who is full of love, who is full of mercy, who is full of grace, who wants to offer a life-transforming truth and a life-saving grace. So in fact, let me invite you, if you have your bulletin, to look at the very first line of the introduction that reveals this God who transforms people. So if you are with me, let me read Romans 1 verse 1 for us. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now the writer Paul's introduction of himself may be very short, yet it is actually a very powerful testimony of the grace that God has for us. You know, if you've ever read the book just prior to Romans, what's that book? 
is the book of Acts, you will find out and you will remember the story and the description of this man, Paul. He was one who ruled his own life. He was his own boss. He had his bloodthirsty ambition. And he judged with an iron feast. He is the man who will not flinch when he will drag women and men into prison. Peaceful men and women who believe in Jesus. But he was completely transformed by the time we read this letter. He was transformed when the grace of God was revealed to him. And so look at verse 1. He says he now belongs to God as his slave, a willing slave. His agenda is now, uh, his agenda is now set by God and he had dropped everything to cling on to the good master called Jesus his Christ. God, by His gospel of love, by His gospel of mercy, by His gospel of grace, set Paul apart and shaped Paul into who he was. And so Christians, for the last 2,000 years, including those who are sitting here today, we give thanks that Paul was not shattered in his hard-heartedness, but he was softened and transformed. Otherwise, the New Testament that you and I have now is going to be half the size. But we, by the grace of God, saw the transformation of Paul. And so now he comes to this series. So I invite us to look into Paul's conversation over the next few weeks with the Roman Christians about the world, about themselves, about God's gospel, and ultimately about us and God. So today as we dig into the introduction of chapter 1, just from verse 1 to 17, Paul begins his letter by bringing that powerful gospel back to light again to his listeners who, like him, were also transformed in Rome to become Christians. This gospel will be the reason and the driving force for all that Paul will intend to unpack in this whole book of Romans. In fact, so central is the gospel between Paul and his listeners that he begins his first paragraph giving us the gospel summary. Now, I want us to recognize this, that when Paul gives his summary, he's not talking to non-Christians. He's speaking to Roman Christians who knew their Bible, who knew the gospel summary. But here he still wants to bring it back because this is where life comes about. Because God's gospel is not just for non-Christians. God's gospel is for Christians. So dear friends, if you are Christians today, and we've gotten so used to hearing the gospel, you've heard it often, it kind of just rings at the back of you like buzzing sound when it's mentioned. Or when going to church no longer is something that you long to hear the gospel being preached. And we do not expect the gospel to change us. If we are Christian but it has become this stage of our life, let Paul say this, that we are missing out big time. You and I know that the knowledge that comes to our head whenever we have knowledge it needs to continually move to the heart and hands to be of any value. So Paul finds it no trouble to begin his series with a summary of the gospel and the identity in the gospel and to bring to surface the roots and the very source of life that you and I will draw from to live and to look forward. So come with me to verse 2 as Paul lays out the gospel summary revealing what and who it is all about. If you have a Bible and your bulletin, 
Uh, look to verse 2 with me. The gospel God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding His Son. That's how He begins, and this is the summary of God's gospel. God promised for centuries and millenniums that He will send His Son into the world to save them from dying. And the Son will come to bless the sick with spiritual health, to point the enslaved to a good king, to, to show the restless the kingdom of peace, to show the dejected what real humanity looks like. He wants to save sinners from condemnation and to offer those who are dying a promise of eternal life. That's the gospel beginning and how Paul begins. God has made known His promise, this promise, not to one person, not to two, to many, many whom we call prophets to reveal that He will send a son. And these prophets, when they hear it, they put it in ink and it's now in your hands if you have a Bible. And the scripture says that this man, uh, this God will be sending one who is his son. And there are two aspects of this son that Paul just wants to summarize. And if you look at verse 2 to 4, you will see them. There are two aspects. First of all, this son that he wants to send is a descendant of a man called David, the king, the greatest king that the Jewish people ever have. He's a physical descendant of a historical king. And now, if, if you're just slightly familiar with, with the story of King David, this is it. King David, he is the representative of God. When David, he is blessed and he's well, God's people are well. But when King David is not well, the people are in trouble. And he is that great king that God used to bless. And so the records comes in. The prophet says, God, this time around, he's going to send the son of David or the descendant of David who will be like David to be a king, but a much greater king. This son will be a king that will be beyond the power, in fact, beyond the greatness of any nations and power or principality that the world has ever seen. He will come to rule perfectly. In fact, he will come to rule forever. So that is the first thing. So Paul, he brings to mind Jesus' physical birth. That verse 3 says, look at it, he says, as to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David. And Jesus, by history, he did fulfill that physical aspect in that he was the descendant of David by birth. Except that he didn't um, come into the world in great power. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born with great power or wealth. He came from a humble background, raised by a poor couple, young couple. He was raised as an unimpressive carpenter. Jesus never ate at a king's table nor owned any chariots. And the time where Jesus finally gets to wear a crown and gets to be called the king of the Jews was actually in mockery. He was hung there on the cross with a crown that fits his skulls and pierced right in and bleeding. And that's why they call him King of the Jews. But now, before we go, I just want to add on one more thing about this son of David, that there is another title that this son of David is given. And that title is called the Son of God. 
I want to draw you to how this came about and refresh you just a little bit from the prophet's words in Second Samuel verse 7. I, I think I put it up there. I hope I did. Second Samuel 7 verse 12. David, uh, God says this to David, When your days are over and you, David, rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This is the word of God to David. I will be his father, and he will be my son. The title, the son of God, is given to the promised son of David. David's crown will be given to this son, And this son will rule on behalf of God. So as Jesus hung on the cross, indeed he was the son of David, king of the Jews, but he was also the son of God. But a really weak looking one. If you look at Jesus on that day on the cross, he looks like a weak son of God, if you even call him that. There's no power visible on the cross as he stands, as he hangs. But Paul wants to draw us back in his gospel summary that this weak-looking son of God that was hanging there did not remain weak because he did die. He did die. He was buried three days uh, underground. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, he lived forever. And look at how Paul summarizes that in Romans 1 verse 4. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord now listen to this Jesus though he died shameful and weak as the son of God when he rose by the spirit of God by the spirit of holiness he rose to power because he was no longer the son of God in weakness he's the son of God who now rules this very day he was appointed in power how? by his resurrection from the dead. Because when he rises from the dead, death has no more hold on him and nothing else holds on him. And this is God's gospel. So as Paul writes to the Romans, he refreshes the minds of the Roman Christians even to ask that Jesus, he fulfilled what God promised and he now rules as king and he will judge the world. And because of that, Paul now is being set apart to run ahead of the king before he comes, to make the great announcement, obey, turn back to Jesus, repent, come to him and receive from God before he comes to judge the world. And now, to add on to this, to think think about this, because Paul is actually saying this, that the obedience to Jesus, the obedience of God, is not a burdensome thing. Obedience to God it's actually life-giving. If you're a Christian who thinks obeying, obeying, uh, obeying God is, is burdensome, Paul tells you obeying God, obeying Christ, gives you life. Imagine obedience is in, in faith is like this. It's like a man who received a fresh breath of air when he was just sinking down in a sea of death under the weight of sin. And Paul says, obey, turn to him. 
that you may have life, obedience to Christ, bow our knees to Him. Because that's where you find grace. Because that's where you find peace. You know, if you are someone who has no faith or has a dead faith, is not exercised, it will not be a surprise to you or me if we do feel as good as dead as we think about our future or we fear death because we have no idea what comes ahead. But for the Christians, for the Christians in Rome, because they too share this amazing inheritance with Paul, they are loved by God, they are called holy people, they, are, they have access to God's kingdom. Paul says this boldly to them. Whatever their circumstances, Paul can see them. He says, and grace and peace belongs to you and from God our Father. And this is how Paul begins his greetings to the Romans, not claiming authority, but pointing that they have a common Lord, they have a common gospel. And so verse 6, if you look at it, that they too are among those who belong to Jesus. Dear friends, if you are someone who is, who is not a Christian today, this is an invitation, the letter of Romans, to come experience, to come and engage, to come and think, and come and experience and see the love, the mercy, and grace that God wants to offer. He doesn't want to break you as an ice heart because you'll still be broken, but He wants to warm you up and offer you grace that you may be transformed by Him. And if you are a Christian, can I say this? That as we gather as a, as a local church to listen to Holy Scripture, we are actually first called to remember our identity in Christ, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are saved, that we are in His hands, that we are preserved for His kingdom. Because if we forget the gospel that are saving us, and we come here and only hear God saying, you must do this and do that and do this and do that, we will not make it. And you'll be heading the wrong direction. So for Christians, when you come, when I come to church, as we hear the Bible being opened, we are first reminded of who we are and what we have before we go on to say how we should live our life. And here is the reality. If we are not reminded of grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we do not dwell in the love of God, if we do not have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, then we will not have the power or the capacity to do what we want to do as Christians or to live what we are called to. So here is Paul's reminder for his readers. And so as he reminds them, he now quickly dives from the gospel summary into the, the obligation, the aspiration, but also the expectation that gospel comes in. So look with me to what Paul has to say as he now looks to the Roman Christian and he is driven and longs to engage and see them. Look at verse 8 with me. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, when this letter of Romans is written, it's mere a few decades since Jesus died and rose from the dead. But already the gospel has spread far and wide from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth, or could we say the center of the world, which is the known Roman Empire. And Paul, who is an apostle of the Gentiles, he rejoices that Rome, even Rome has been preached. Even Rome has 
Christian and his joy is further compounded that what he hears is that the Roman Christians under the Roman emperor, their faith is strong and their faith is being spread to the rest of the world or the known world of the Roman Empire. And look at it, he describes in verse 11 his longing to, to see the Romans and, and we can feel even Paul's longing and excitement if you look at verse 9 and 10 when suddenly he has a window of opportunity that he can finally visit them. He says this, God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Now what drives Paul to be so excited to finally meet Christians in Rome? Well, there are, there are many reasons. One could be that Paul is a Roman citizen. Finally, he gets to be in Rome to see Roman citizen Christians. Well, Paul might be excited because he has heard so much about them and he finally wants to put the names to the faces. Paul could be very excited to go to Rome because a lot of his friends, those who have shared accommodation in prison with him, those who have shared fixing tents with him, the whole list in the last chapter of Romans 16 were there. He, he wants to see them, but ultimately what drives Paul to want to go to Rome has been waiting for all this time to go to Rome is his passion and excitement because of God's gospel again. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now Paul said that because God's gospel, he was obligated to preach the, the, the word to both Greek speakers and non-Greek speakers. If, if you have your own Bible, some of the translation just says the Greeks and the barbarians. What it means is this, that the Greeks speakers are, are seen as people who are elite, who are the wise, who are the smart. Those who can't speak Greek probably those who are not so smart, uneducated, the less eloquent, perhaps even the foolish. But whoever it is, Paul says he was obligated to preach the gospel to them. In fact, if you look carefully, he says, it is because of this unfinished work, I want to go to Rome and I get stuck all the time. Either I'm stuck preaching the gospel, I'm stuck because I have to take a visit to the prison, I'm stuck because I get shipwrecked, I can't come to you, but... It's because of the gospel, but now I finished this work. I want to come to you with the gospel as well. Paul is clear that the gospel is not only for the non-Christians, which he said in verse 5, that they need to come to Jesus. But look at verse 15. He makes it clear that the gospel is also for Christians. Paul is both obligated and eager to preach the gospel also to the Roman Christians that he wants to visit. So here, God's gospel, what, what it does, it drives Christians with an obligation. It's an obligation that comes with believing in the gospel, that is to save souls. But at the same time, the obligation of the gospel brings about an aspiration, an eagerness for Christians to do things that are impossible by their own means, to warm icy hearts, to melt 
hardened souls. And if you look on to set prisoners free from condemnation, and more than that, the, the gospel gives an obligation for Christians, but this obligation brings eagerness and aspiration to the Christian. But for Christians who, who are obligated, who are eager, if you notice that there is also an expectation that good will come of it. Paul expects 100% when he comes to the Romans that some good will appear between them. In fact, look at what he thinks about his visit, verse 11 to 12. He says this, For I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. As Paul speaks about his longing to see them, he adds on his, his aspiration, his expectation for this visit. He aspires to impart to them some spiritual gift and he expects that when he does that, their faith will be strengthened and so will everyone else, including himself. That's an amazing thing. You feel obligated to go there, but when he goes there, he has this desire, eagerness to give them gifts and he expects the gifts to do what... Um, the gift would do to strengthen them and to each other. Now, what kind of gift would you think that Paul wants to impart when he goes there? Think for a moment, what, what is the gift that Paul would give them to do such great work? Make them strong, strengthen their faith that they can go forth. What, what gifts will you do if you're, you're, you're Paul? Well, I don't think Paul would see himself as a super apostle coming here to grant them some power so they can speak in tongues or do some miracles. I also don't think Paul thinks that the Christians in Rome are inadequate if he doesn't come, that they are lacking because they have everything they need in Jesus Christ. So what could be the spiritual gift Paul wishes to impart how does Paul make the Roman Christians strong and build about, bring about mutual encouragement and faith building? Well, this is what I think. Since Paul, he is a gospel person and he's driven by God's gospel, I think Paul is planning to visit, to impart what he always imparts when he visits churches, among the Gentile churches. He wants to go there. He wants to unpack the gospel message that they've accepted to root it deeper in them such that they can flourish and bear fruits that are visible, that will strengthen their faith and everyone around gets strengthened. To put it another way, Paul's gift to them is to grow their comprehension of God's word and God's gospel and bring about the implication in their life that it will actually bear fruits in them. Now, think with me for just a moment of all your, all your skills and all your talents, because all of you and all of us have talents. Your skills in music, your language, your administrative skill, you're good with encouragement. You are good with making a living. You're artistic. You're people who are good with building. You're good with teaching. You're striking conversation with, with, with people who are introverts. Now, all these talents, I can list more and more. They are great skills and they are talents. They are, they are admirable. But let me say this. Let me say this. 
All these, they are not gifts that will strengthen your faith if they are not being applied. If they are not being used to serve others. Now God's gospel, in fact, when you hear God's gospel, it's not a gift if it doesn't apply to you. As we learn from scriptures day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, what we hear actually doesn't strengthen you and me or encourage us if it just remains at the intellectual level that we use for arguments, but they've never reached into the heart or show in our hands. Because the intellectual exercise does not strengthen our faith. In fact, imagine me, all the calories we eat in every day, all these calories that give us energy, do you think it's gift to you if we don't work it out? The calories we have for energy, if we don't use to serve others, if we do not use to exercise, they are no gifts to you. And many of us might attest to that. Okay, calories are not, probably not the best thing to think about, but you get my picture that the gifts is meant to build. So I think we can discuss further later on, and I hope you, you engage with me on that, on verse 11 and 12, what your thoughts are. But I think the spiritual gift Paul wishes to impart to Roman Christians is to grow their comprehension of the gospel truth and to apply it in their lives. I think that's why he begins from verse 1 to 7 that we have looked at for a long time. Not his authority, but, but his mission because of the gospel, his mission to proclaim the gospel. Well, what are aspects of the gospel Paul wishes the Romans to comprehend and apply? Well, there are plenty, and over the weeks we will look at all this, how Paul applies the gospel. But I just bring out two very intentional aspects that will be the key, will be the big part of his reason of coming to them. There are two things that Paul wishes to achieve when he goes there. The first is that he actually wished to go there and create harmony between the Jews and Gentiles. If you read on later, and we'll go into greater details in weeks to come, that the Jews and Gentiles, they are not natural friends from history. The Jews do not like the Gentiles. They despise the Gentiles. The the Gentiles do not like the Jews. The Jews think that they're they're God's people, and the Gentiles are out out there, and the Gentiles just hate them for being proud and arrogant of being the only one who has a God. But when the gospel comes, guess what? God brought the Jews and Gentiles and not just asked them to shake hands and say, you're now family. And that is the tension they have. But gospel changes everything. And Paul intends in this letter as we move on to bring in harmony between the Jews and Gentiles. That's one thing that Paul wants to bring in. The second thing Paul wants to bring in when he comes to Romans are uh, to Rome, he wished that they would be a gospel partner with him to bring the gospel out. Where do we see that? Let me bring you to right the very end of Romans 15, uh, Romans in chapter 15, uh, some words of Paul's intention when he comes. This is what he says in Romans 15, verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in this region, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, 
I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through to have you assist me on my journey there after I enjoyed your company for a while. Paul, Paul has preached all he could in the regions that he had and now he hopes to go to Spain to preach and he hopes while he was going to Spain, he would stop by, meet up, have fellowship with them and allow them to partner him in the gospel ministry. So Paul brings in, there are two key things, there are a lot of others, but these are the two key things that Paul is eager to see them face to face so that they will have a share of it. Harmony in the gospel and gospel partnership out. Because surely when the most unlikely harmony between enemies happen, when people are willing to partner for gospel to people they have not heard of, surely the gospel becomes visible to the world and the gospel becomes real to the people involved. Not only were the people who engaged Paul in this strengthen their faith, Paul, in being helped by them out, gets mutually encouraged. Do you see what Paul is trying to do? That as he goes forth to them, it's not to give you lots of Christmas presents that you just indulge, but he wants them to have things that will increase and strengthen their faith. At the same time, Paul says, and you, when you respond, you encourage and strengthen my faith. So as I pause here for a moment, I just want us to to think about ourselves for just that moment, for us and the church that we live with. Just imagine with me for a moment that this impossible thing, Paul decides to come and visit you and me. He's going to write a letter and say, Hey guys, I've been thinking about you all this time in Singapore and Coburn or wherever you are. I'd like to visit you and I want to impart you some gifts. What do you think Paul is going to come and bring to you and me? What do you expect him to bring that will strengthen your faith? With some more miracles? To some great abilities that we have? Pretty much not, I guess. I think he will come, he will unpack the gospel so that we can sink deeper in it and that we can apply more of it, that we can see the gospel clearer each day. And in so doing, we strengthen our faith, and we mutually encourage each other. Paul will likely call us to greater obedience, greater service, greater sacrifice, greater love, greater giving, greater risk, if we are people who are not risk takers, to appreciate discomfort, to understand suffering, that comes with obeying the gospel. And as we apply the gospel in our lives and we apply it with each other, the faith that we have becomes a greater certainty of the hope that will happen in the future. Now, dear friends, do we lament about life at times? Let me just think about our life day to day. Do we, do we lament about our life and take the gospel for granted? Or do we drink from God's word regularly, finding refreshments there? Do we pray to God only telling Him about our difficulties? Or do we give thanks to God regularly whenever we are reminded of the gospel and those who partner with us? Are we comfortable? Are we seeking comfort? Probably a a good, engaging, and humorous sermon or, or nice ambience when we go to church. Or when we go to church, we're always looking, let me hear the gospel 
And let me extend the gospel grace to those who sit around us in order that my faith may be strengthened and in order that their faith will be strengthened. The building of faith is intertwined with the building of others when we obey God. Let me say that again. The building of our faith is intertwined with the building of others by obedience to God. When we apply God's grace, our faith and those of others gets built up together. We look deeper into Paul's use of the gospel in these weeks to come. We are only at the introduction, but here is one last but very central point Paul has for us about the co-relationship between the gospel message to obligation. Because between these two, the key point, in fact, some would say for the whole of Romans is this, the gospel is God's power for everything. Look with me on these last two verses. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. First of all, if, if, you, if you grab hold of Paul and ask Paul this question, Paul, why are you so eager to preach the gospel? Why are you so eager to come to Rome? Paul's answer will be this. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You say, hold on a minute, Paul. Why are you not ashamed? And Paul's answer is this. Because the gospel is not weak, the gospel is powerful. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, I don't want to think of yourself as yourself. I want to imagine that you are the Romans listening to Paul saying this. The power of God, uh, the, the gospel is the power of God. You know what they think? What comes to your mind when you think of power? Some people think of a car. The car that goes really fast. Think of power, think of your boss. To the Romans, when Paul says power, they look out of their window and see where the emperor stays. In Rome, when you think of power, you see the one who has conquered the known world whose other nations were not there to fight the Roman soldiers. No other kings were there to stand against the throne of the Roman emperor. That is power. But Paul says to the Romans, there is a much greater power. The power of God in the message I carry. Because this power has the ability to defeat enemies that even that emperor or any emperor and kings will never be able to defeat. Because even the Roman emperor himself will bow to the enemy called death. But I tell you, the gospel carries the king that God has, that death bows to him. That's why Paul, in using the word, the power of the gospel, is a direct confrontation with the powers that this world has. Now I want to bring to you what this power has in two things that Paul has for us. 
First, the power, the gospel powerfully offers salvation. Gospel has all the power to save everyone, although the, the salvation is given or effective for those who comes and grabs it. But it has power for the salvation to include everyone. In fact, that is the only way for salvation. That's the power of the gospel. Second one, that's where I will need you to focus with me and stick with me for two minutes because this is where you might miss it if if you blink for a moment. The, the, The gospel powerfully reveals the righteousness of God. Now, someone will ask, what, what does that mean? Power reveals the righteousness. What is the righteousness of God? First of all, the righteousness of God reveals God's character. God is the righteous God. It's the attribute of God. The righteousness of God tells us, first of all, that God is righteous. It's His character. But the second thing about the word righteousness comes that God's action is righteous. And this is God's action. God, from the beginning, He voluntarily said this. He said, I'm going to come and save the people, these impossible people. And God is revealed to be righteous when He managed to keep His word. There's no wrong. He right, in His righteousness, He kept His word and promised to us. And here comes the implication for you and me. Because God is righteous, God's action is righteous. He kept His word. Now, because He has kept His word, and Jesus has come and has died and offers a great exchange between you and me, we give Him our unrighteousness. He gives us His righteousness. This righteousness of God now becomes a status. Not by what you do and what I do, but when we accept and have faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ becomes our status to have the righteousness of God. That is the power of the gospel. To make the impossible, unrighteous, rough, deserving people. By having faith in Christ, exchange the whole thing for the Son of God to take our place and we take His place. Paul says that is the power. There's a power that no other emperors and kings can give. So the gospel amazingly reveals the power that's at work since the beginning of time. And here's an interesting illustration that Augustine of Hippo, his a great Christian father in the first few centuries, he gave this illustration, and I thought it was amazing. I picked it up from Christopher Ash, but this is what um, Augustine says: All through Old Testament. Imagine that you have this grand room and all the furnitures are being put in place. Everything is ready to be set. But people all over the centuries have only had a dim light to to kind of gauge what what, what this place looks like. They feel a little bit, touch a little bit. They have no picture until when the gospel light appears. It's like that bright light that you switch on and suddenly you see this is the whole grand plan of God and the gospel reveals who God is, what God has been planning, and what God is giving us at the very right moment when Jesus comes. So the gospel has power because it reveals everything when Christ comes for you and me. 
Dear friends, as we come to a close, let's just consider one last time about ourselves and our relationship with this great gospel. Do we live oblivious, at least in practice, of the gospel? Or do we trust that the gospel has power in your life and my life? Do we live each day blinded by the burdens of our world when we go forth seeking something else to give us some hope and joy? Or do we cling on to the gospel of God, trusting that that refreshes us if only we'll look at it a little bit longer? Do we live each day paddling for what the rest of the world paddles for? Or do we come to the gospel knowing that this is what life is all about. Dear friends, the power of God is in the gospel. Will we drink from it every day? Not just once in a while, but every day that life comes to us, that fruits may be born, that we can help each other in encouraging our faith together. Now we're just at the beginning of Romans series. We're ending today. I pray that as we journey together over the next few months that we will start to taste the gospel more and more. But let me just close with this example because when we come to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, can I say that many have said that 16 and 17 is the crux of this whole letter and if anything to play by, Romans 1, verse 17 is the per- turning point of Christianity because Romans 1 verse 17, some people call it the Reformation text because this is the text that woken up Martin Luther 500 years ago and brought about what we call Reformation. And that's differentiating us Christians and the Roman Catholic. That was the splitting point and this is the verse. Let me read to you what happened 500 years ago as we close. I just want to bring us to the experience that Luther has. Luther has been struggling. He tried to be a good man all his life, but he struggled with God's wrath. But one day, while meditating on Psalms and Romans, he came to finally understand this, and he wrote this. I put it on the screen. He says this, The righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely, by faith. The righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Meaning, having understood that faith, actually, if you are Christian and you have faith, it is a gift from God. And Paul and Luther, when he recognized that, he broke away from his greatest fear of judgment. And he wrote again, I'll close with this, when he recognized that salvation comes through faith, but even faith is from God. He said this, Here I felt as if I was entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. That's what the gospel does. It flings open the door of heaven that all who believe may enter. That's the power of the gospel revealed on Luther. It changed all of us for the last 500 years if you ever enter a church today. And I pray that over the next few weeks, that the gospel may also come into our life, challenging us and transforming us, melting any icy hearts that we may have, that it will be of a different 
qualitative and quantitative um, heart uh, that God has and wants us to have. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the series of Romans as we just begin, that we dwell just a little bit more on the introduction to your and the summary of your gospel. And there are more in the weeks to come. We pray, God, that you will help us to engage with your word because it is the source of life and that our life are transformed when your word touches us. So we pray in the weeks ahead for all of us that we continue to dwell more and think more of your gospel. And we pray God your Holy Spirit works that into us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.